Okay, I love the title of, of uh, today's discussion, Breaking Bread, because when you think about breaking bread, you think about respect, you think about friendliness, you think about partnerships, and boy, that's certainly something that we, we really need now. I, I had the privilege of serving in Congress between 87 and 2003, and even during that time, it was not uncommon that we would sit together and break bread, and, and that we would have discussions, and we would disagree, but we would try to work something out. In fact, when I put legislation in, I'd try to get Democrats to come on my legislation. Democrats put legislation and they try to get me to get on there to make it look bipartisan, uh, and now that, that has not been the case. I think about the fact that uh, we just lost Tom Foley, and we lost Bill Young. And then I remember very, very warmly, in fact, I cut it out, the article that uh, Bob Michael wrote. He wrote an article about, you know, remembering <coughs> Tom Foley's bipartisan spirit. And it was a very nice one, because he talked about how they worked together. And as a matter of fact, when Tom Foley was then ultimately defeated, and he gave his final speech, he called Bob Michael at the other party up to be the speaker at that particular time. And that said something about that close relationship, even though they did disagree. Well, I don't have to talk to you now about what, what you all have been experiencing and what the American public have been experiencing with regard to polarization um, and gridlock, dysfunction, <coughs> difficulty finding a common ground. So. I, if there's a bright spot in all of this, it's that amid the, the uh, partisanship, there are many glimmers of hope. Republicans and Democratic members of Congress who all say they really want to work together and are trying to work out some of the difficulties and put politics aside and find common ground. So we are honored today, my friends, to be joined by four of those members two Democrats, two Republicans. And it's my privilege to introduce one of them who will then introduce his colleagues and then the program will really begin. I'm going to introduce to you Congressman uh, Jim Renacci. I want you, uh, want you to know he's in his second term. He represents the 16th District of Ohio. Congressman Renacci serves on the Ways and Means Committee and in his role uh, he has introduced bipartisan legislation called the Budget Process <coughs> Improvement Act of 2013 to end deceptive accounting practices in government and provide more transparency in federal spending. Um, as Jim had mentioned, he's also been a vocal proponent of a bipartisan bill to prohibit discrimination against veterans and service members seeking employment or seeking housing opportunities. So, all told, his work with both Republicans and Democrats is a breath of fresh air in today's political climate, and it's providing leadership on many of our nation's pressing needs. So will you, friends, join me in welcoming to the podium Congressman Jim Renacci. Again, I want to thank all of you for being here too. You know, it's interesting, uh, bipartisanship, I was a businessman for 28 years, always thought that's what you normally did anyway. I never knew who was a Republican or Democrat in any one of my businesses. We just had a common goal and we got something done. When I got here two and a half years ago, I'll never forget, I, I went to my first financial services 
meeting, Financial Services Committee, I remember they've called these things opening statements, and these opening statements, they started out by throwing a hand grenade over at the other side, and then the other side got a hand grenade and threw it across the aisle and back and forth. They finally got to me, and I said, I'm not throwing any hand grenades. I thought this was a committee meeting on whatever it was, and people kind of looked at me and thought, what's this guy talking about? But it, it actually worked out because a member from the other side, John Carney, walked over to me one day and says, you know one thing we noticed about you? You don't throw hand grenades. You don't, you don't talk about the other party. You want to get the facts. You want to get the information. You want to get something done. There's a lot of guys on the other side that kind of like that. They like you. I like to get to know you. So John, I said, well, let's have breakfast one day. So John and I had breakfast, and I said, well, it's kind of funny. You sound like uh, you want to do the same thing I do. In fact, I can't even tell you're a Democrat or I'm a Republican. We're talking the same way. I said, do you have any other friends like that? And he says, well, sure, I do. And I, said, I said, I do too. Um, so that was actually the start of the breakfast group, which uh, some of you have heard about in the past. And what I did is I went out and I grabbed a few of, of my fellow colleagues, and John uh, did the same. And we started to have meetings about every two or three weeks, breakfast meetings. And uh, quite frankly, in the first uh, two years, we introduced five pieces of legislation, actually got something through. Uh, in legislation last year, which was uh, reforming the unemployment insurance uh, as part of uh, um, the payroll tax extension. So we were able to work together. We put a number of bills together. And by the way, we're still meeting. And we've added, of course, some people. We went from 6 to 10 to 12. And now we have a group of about uh, 20 members. And uh, you know, some of the members are gonna, I'm going to be introducing today. But it's ultimately really where we, we need to go. And, and I will tell you, not only are they my colleagues, but many of the members now have become some of my closest friends. And I can tell you that um, even last week, through all the ups and downs and the, you know, the financial issues we had, um, John Delaney, who I'll be introducing later, um, John and I actually went on national TV, and, and quite frankly, um, I believe we had the answer, which was, you know what, let's extend uh, the, the uh, uh, debt ceiling. Let, let's require us to go back to work. Let's make sure that we do tax reform. Let's make sure that we do, um, you know, uh, reforms on Social Security. It's funny, when you talk about Social Security, somebody says, well, that's an easy thing. Well, sure, well, if it's easy, let's do it. Let's work together to get some of those things done. So that really has to be our goal. You know, taking the little things, getting them done, and moving forward together. And I gotta tell you, um, it, it, I'm so proud to be able to be here and introduce uh, the members that are with me here today. I know they've, they've, uh, they've been uh, very helpful. Uh, the first uh, member that uh, I'd like to come up is Mike Kelly. Um, he represents Pennsylvania's third district, serves on the House Committee on Ways and Means. He's a co-chair of the Northeast Midwest Congressional Coalition, a bipartisan group of U.S. representatives from the 18 Northeastern and Midwestern states. Please welcome Congressman Mike Kelly. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, you know, Jim and I are both car dealers, so we really hit it off right away. Uh, but I would say, you know, what he's talking about is stuff that is so common sense in the private sector. There's nobody that looks at what we're doing and says, yeah, this kind of makes sense. I could run my business this way. Yes, you could, but for a very short period of time. <laughs> so whenever Jim had decided, and we met very early on when we first got elected, we got elected uh, uh, at the same time, and he said, you know what, do you want to come to breakfast with me? I met this guy, John Carney, and I said, you know, I actually met Carney up in Boston at the uh, Kennedy uh, Government Center. We, when we first got elected, we went up there, liked him. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, let's, let's get together. So. This 
group that Jim's put together really does have a common bond. They, they really get it. They understand it. And I think sort of the thing is, you know, and you all know, most of you have been here a long, long time, but for somebody who's an outsider, as myself, I'm not a politician. Uh, I could not run my business without negotiating and without compromising and without having a common goal. And I think sometimes it's so polarized right now, and I think the problem is we don't understand that we're not really Democrats versus Republicans or vice versa. We're two parties doing the best thing for this country. I played the sports teams all my life, and I would just tell you this, there's no team out there where the offense criticizes the defense or they get on special teams and they forget, you know, right across the field, about 50 yards across the field is a team that you've got to beat. So if we're together as a, as a group, if we're together as legislators trying to do the best thing for America, hell, that's easy. Who has more assets than we do? There's nobody in the world that even comes close to who we are. The only thing we're missing right now is the ability to work together to get it done, common goal, doesn't matter who's, whose idea it was. I think it's Gerda that says, it's amazing how much we can accomplish it. No one person needs to receive the credit. So we can do that, we can get together. So working with Jim has been great. Just got to meet John because he just came in uh, this year. But we have some really good people on that committee and uh, I'm looking forward to being with you today, Andy Parr. Great to have you with us, buddy. Thank you. Next colleague I get to introduce actually has become a very good friend of mine. Uh, he, he just was elected this year. A little interesting piece of news I learned after getting to know John is that uh, when I sold my company, there had to be a buyer, and the buyer needed financing. And uh, I learned that John actually helped the buyer get the financing, so I really like him. Here. Uh, yeah. John represents uh, Maryland's 6th District, which includes portions of Washington, D.C. suburbs, serves on the Financial Services Committee and the Joint Economic a joint economic committee. He has founded two New York Stock Exchange listed companies before the age of 40 and is the past winner of the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Please welcome Congressman John Dwayne. Thanks Jim and, and Mike. It's great to be here with you uh, and Congresswoman Morello. Always a pleasure. Uh, someone who's very famous. A little bit of my district overlaps the congresswoman's uh, old district. They changed the district lines quite a bit in Maryland, so it's a little hard to track. Uh, but uh, it's always great to see you because you're so beloved uh, in the community. So uh, great to see you. Uh, so, you know, working together with people from the other side of the aisle, I think comes naturally to many people who have a business background because I know I speak for Jim and Mike when I say this. In my business career, someone's political persuasions were the least relevant thing in any kind of relationship I have with them. In fact, I do business with people for 10, 12 years sometimes, and I know a lot about them, I know a lot about their family, we trust each other, and I would never know their politics. Because to some extent, I wasn't even polite to bring it up, and, and, and sometimes you know what their politics are, that's just because it came up. So I think when you come from the private sector in particular, you come to this body with a view that when you meet someone, the first thing uh, that doesn't come to your mind is their politics. You actually listen to them, you think about their values, you think about the force of their ideas, the quality of their intellect, uh, what kind of character they have. And so I think it, generally speaking, is easier for people from the private sector to try to operate in a bipartisan or constructive manner because it's really not how we were trained. You learn quickly, uh, as both Jim and Mike said, that this place operates obviously very differently. And there's a couple of uh, insights that I have uh, into that that I thought was worth sharing. 
First, I, I definitely think we have moved from a world where principle used to matter to a world, world where ideology matters. And one of the problems with ideology is people go to the answer before they look at the facts. And I think that's a really troubling trend because we all have high principles, things we really care about. And generally speaking, great things were always done at the intersection of principle and compromise. And the problem is when you move from principle to ideology, you, you really almost definitionally lose the ability to compromise because it's never a fact-based discussion. And I think one of the things that allows many of us to work on a bipartisan manner, particularly around economic policy, is that economic policy is to some extent like business. It's all about compromise. No matter what we do in an economic context, there will be a counterweight or a countermeasure. So if we try to do things as uh, members of Congress to help the Americans that are unemployed, which is obviously a tragedy, we will inevitably have some effect on Americans who are employed. And that's just the way economic policy works. So to, to come to an economic debate without a spirit of compromise is to some extent to come to the debate saying, I'm not going to try to seek best ideas. And so I think, particularly around economic policy, what I try to tell people is that we need to break our issues into two portfolios. We need to have a portfolio of issues where we are, in fact, uncompromising, and we kind of know what those issues are. But then everything else should be in, in the portfolio of economic policy, which is all about compromise. And we should have a really intense spirit of compromise around economic policy, not just because it's the right way to operate, but it's actually the right answer. I mean, if you were thinking about how to come up with good economic policy, it would be based on bringing in a lot of different ideas and, and formulating opinions. And so I have enjoyed working with people in a bipartisan way. I have a bunch of bipartisan bills, uh, including some fairly significant economic legislation that uh, is being done in a bipartisan manner. And people say to me, well, how, um, how, do, you, uh, how do you get people to work uh, on these things in a bipartisan manner? And similar to what Jim said, I, I, I normally say, well, my first rule is I try not to say bad things about them. <laughs> because in the private sector, it was really hard to do things with people when you constantly said bad things about them. So, uh, you know, as a rule of thumb, I try not to say bad things about them. And then the second thing I try to do is actually come up with ideas that I, that I think are, is, are receptive to their perspective. In other words, I come to the debate saying, I've got an idea, but I've actually kind of formulated it in a way that I think should be appealing to you, someone on the other side. And then I try to spend a lot of time with them. I've got a large uh, infrastructure bill that uh, is very bipartisan. We've got 24 uh, Democrats and Republicans on the bill, Andy Barr's on the bill. And um, it funds infrastructure, and it uses a tax break on repatriation of overseas earnings to fund it. I won't get into the details of the bill. But I had 90 meetings in Republican colleagues' offices for the first five months I was in Congress. And, uh, you know, it set up an appointment like I did with Andy, and I said, I want to get on your calendar, and I'd go to his office, I had a little presentation, and I went through it. And it was surprising to me how little of that actually goes on, where people go to their other person's office, sit down, and walk through something. Uh, and we, we, I think we need more of that. But anyway, it's really nice to be here. Um, my second time in the club, it's a much nicer club than the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> so in the spirit of bipartisanship, we should, we should share resources. <laughs> so anyway. I uh, my last colleague, and although he's uh, not a member of the Bipartisan Breakfast Club, we might get him in our group here going forward. Uh, um, Andy represents Kentucky's 6th District and in his first term in office, as I mentioned, he serves on the 
Committee of Financial Services and the Republican Study Committee. Prior to Congress, he served in the offices of U.S. Representative Jim Talent and Governor Ernie Fletcher and also practiced law. He currently resides in Lexington, Kentucky and is an avid University of Kentucky fan. Please welcome Congressman Andy Barr. Thanks, Jim, and thanks to the Ripon Society, and thanks to my, my uh, very esteemed colleagues over here who, uh, from their comments, obviously, you can see what tremendous contributions they make and continue to make to our country and, and moving the country forward. John uh, is exactly right. We don't have nearly as much of the, uh, the interaction as we should in each other's offices, but uh, I give uh, John so much credit for reaching out to, to members like me, uh, freshman colleagues who are brand new to Congress. We're still trying to find our way around. And um, when he presented his uh, idea to me, I was struck by his intelligence. I was struck by his thoughtfulness. And when you strip away uh, any kind of preconceived notions about you know, political party affiliation and you just look at the ideas on the merits, um, I recognize what a powerful idea and how persuasive uh, he was in presenting the idea. So I give, give great credit to him. It taught me a very uh, important lesson early on in my congressional career. And that is that uh, you got to have an open mind. You got to listen to one another and you got to think about, um, uh, you got to recognize the fact that uh, there's, there's a lot of bright people up here who have really good ideas. Don't. Uh, come to uh, these things with uh, just partisan uh, glasses on, take a look at the merits of the idea. Um, at the risk of oversimplifying what has been a very difficult uh, time and a very complex set of problems facing our country over the last uh, three, four weeks and the last number of years, um, you know, a little bit of common sense as we look at our uh, debt and deficit challenges and our spending challenges uh, and healthcare reform challenges might be in order at this time moving forward. Um, I come from the, dis the district of Henry Clay. Henry Clay, as you may know, was the only Speaker of the House uh, who was elected Speaker on the day he was sworn in. I don't think that'll ever happen ever again. <laughs> but Henry Clay, as you all may know, was known as the Great Compromiser. He's credited with delaying the Civil War for a decade uh, through negotiation and compromise. And some have said that we live in an era in American politics that is uh, as divided or almost as divided as that terrible time in American history uh, running up to the Civil War. I don't think it's that bad. But, uh, but, but truly, there are, there are deep divisions in American politics and, and in American society today. But what I hear uh, from my district, from people out there uh, who, who are you know, paying their taxes, paying their bills, trying to uh, save for college for their kids, uh, they don't understand why um, the politicians in Washington are putting political agendas ahead of solutions for the American people. They really do want us to solve the problem. But I believe that in the spirit of Henry Clay, in divided government, the only way forward is through negotiation and compromise. I mean, if you think about it, this, this, this very difficult time that we went through in the last three weeks, um, how do we get through that? Well, I suppose there's three ways through it. There's three ways that we can uh, end the, the, the frustrating political gridlock. One would be if Republicans in Congress said, you know what, you're right, we shouldn't do any mandatory reforms at all. No reforms to mandatory spending. 
Uh, no changes to the Affordable Care Act whatsoever, and we do need to raise taxes. How many people think that that is realistic? We're going to <laughs> the other way is if President Obama and Democrats in the Senate said, you know what, the Republicans are 100% correct. We need to repeal Obamacare, well, we need to cut taxes, and we need a premium support in the, in the way that Paul Ryan proposes. Who believes that that's going to happen? But there is a third way, and frankly, maybe the only way forward, and in the spirit of Henry Clay, through negotiation and compromise, we come to something in the middle. And that could be, I'm sure these gentlemen have some really good ideas and I need to listen to their ideas, but it could be something short of premium support, but nonetheless changes to our mandatory spending, tax reform to make our tax code more simple, less complicated, uh, that perhaps even raises revenue, but not by raising marginal rates, but through simplification and economic growth, uh, and maybe some reforms to the Affordable Care Act that certainly don't repeal the Affordable Care Act, which has been a 50-year uh, priority of the Democratic Party, but something that maybe helps improve the situation and deals with some of the frustrations that both Republicans and Democrats are experiencing with the Affordable Care Act. That is a middle ground, and that may be an oversimplification of the complexities of our problems, but again, in divided government, that is really the only way forward. Um, so I brought uh, the old uh, trustee Federalist Papers with me today, and I won't read from it, but <clears throat> what Madison said in Federalist 51, uh, when we're having trouble, we always go back to our founding fathers, the wisdom of these political philosophers who founded our country. And I'm paraphrasing, but what he basically said was that in a country, in a republic with factions, uh, the majority party cannot and should not be able to get anything accomplished without reliance on the minority party. That's the way that divided government is supposed to operate, uh, through checks and balances and separation of powers. Workable government requires negotiation and compromise in a constitutional system with divided and separated <coughs> powers. So uh, maybe this is an oversimplification, maybe this is my freshman naivete, uh, but it seems to me that this is possible, and frankly because we are in a divided time in our country, uh, maybe this is the right time to get the big things done in a bipartisan way. Thank you very much. Great. Um, at, first and foremost, our finished friends meet, have a number of members of Congress that they're meeting, and I realize if you start getting late at this particular, you will never catch up. So thank you all so much for being with us. Come back and see us soon. And, uh, so Connie Morella, you as the introducer have the privilege of asking the first question to this esteemed group. Edward Arlington Robinson once wrote a poem where he said, you know, and, you know, Americans are like kindergartners trying to spell God with the wrong blocks. So now we want to hear from you about how do you find the right blocks? What would you say is the biggest barrier to bipartisanship? And incidentally, John Lane, thank you for being the solo. Democrat today, we had expected that you would have some uh, uh, ammunition, but uh, but you can handle it. 
And just as you said, in a bipartisan way. But uh, you've all done a great job with your comments. But what do you think the biggest barriers are? Are they, uh, the is it the leadership, the hastic role, the money, the, the, the voters? Uh, would you like to start off? Well, I think it's a little bit of all that. I mean, uh, I mean you could actually add in um, what, what a number of the comments were brought up. Ideology sometimes gets in the way of, of uh, compromise. Uh, you know, you got to go back and still represent your districts, and the gerrymandering of the districts has, has made things somewhat complicated. Um, and then, as I said many times, I think every once in a while leadership does get in the way. And, uh, and that's why I'm hoping that from our group we can start to pull together a faction of Democrats and Republicans who can continue to at least help leadership move the ball forward. Well, and I agree with you, but you know, and Shelley and I were talking about this right before breakfast. The word of bill yesterday that went through, I mean, did anybody see the, the numbers on that? Yeah. Okay, so if you, if you want to talk about can you guys work together and get something done, and the answer is of course we can. Of course we can. But I, I agree with Jim. Now, you know, the other thing is we've got a lot of outside people that, that score things that at the end of the day, they will change somebody completely from where they thought they were to where they think they have to be. And that's a tough thing. Sometimes you gotta kinda isolate yourself from that and kinda weigh it and take a look at it and say, how relevant is this really? Uh, am I giving these people too much credit for something that they haven't earned? Uh, because I, I feel like Jim and I'm John and Andy the same thing. I represent 705,687 people in Western Pennsylvania. I have no idea how they're registered. And my, uh, my job is not to gauge uh, who they are or what they are, it's to serve their needs, whatever it may be. And the hard thing back home, as you go back home, this is a hard thing to navigate. You try to do anything in the federal government, these folks, the average citizen, just throws their, their hands up, they start pulling hair. So I, you, you can't go through that and think that somehow you don't have to relate to them. So I spend a lot of time, and I, I think we all do, meeting people, I'll meet people after mass, I see them in Kmart, I see them in the Sam's Club or Walmart, and, just having a conversation in the parking lot. But really, I asked Mr. Rangel one time, I said, what the heck happened here? He said, you know, we used to do a lot of things, kind of like you said. So we used to go out and have dinner together, we'd have drinks together, we kind of enjoyed each other. But back in the mid-90s, it changed. It became polarized. And he said, then we were on the floor. He said, if you turn around and look up at the desk, he said, somebody will talk to me after a while and say, what the heck were you doing sitting with Kelly and talking like that? And he said, you know, I said, really? He goes, yeah, he said, no, that doesn't, I could care less. But that's where we come from. He said, we have that on both sides. So if you're truly divided that way, and for me, I have no idea. I've never been here before. I don't know why these folks don't like each other. I quite frankly, I don't even care. Uh, but we can get a lot done. And, and I think that the word of Bill yesterday proved when you have a committee working together the way Bill Schuster worked that, and you see that total vote, just ask you, go to that vote and look at those vote totals and you tell me that we're divided and we can't get anything done. That is an incredible piece of legislation that really, I think, sets the tone for the next months as we work for it. Because if they can do that, why can't the other committees do that? Why can't we do the same thing with other pieces of legislation? And why can't we have a win for America? And I just think that that was a great example yesterday. So, you know, Shelby, you and I were talking. I felt so good yesterday. I saw the speaker last night. And, I know he's starting to get back on his feet again. It's tough for him. Um, but I think we all feel good as members that we were able to get through that. So, yeah. So, Connie, there's still a lot of things we can do. I don't know about the blocks. Uh, I just, I, I, but I do know that it's, it's so easy. You, know, you can't do it here. My God, where else in the world would you go? You've got everything. 
everything except right now strong leadership in a, in a strong direction and a goal. So, so I, I agree with everything that's been said. I would add two things. It's clear that the redistricting issue, which is talked about often, really does cause significant problems. Because again, as someone who's new to Congress, by any measure, the easiest people to work with in Congress are the ones who are in more competitive districts. You know, any way you correlate it. And it's not because the, the people who are in uh, kind of one-sided districts are not good people and are not constructive. It's just that they have a different incentive system. So to the extent we could do something, uh, which is obviously ambitious and hard to do, to uh, change the way districts are created in this country so that that doesn't mean there won't be one-sided districts even if we do that because there will but to, if we could increase the number of competitive districts by 15 20 percent I think it would make a material difference in how we govern and I think that's something that we really need to focus on trying to make that happen because you know to the extent people are really focused on general elections versus primaries they have a different orientation and then uh, I, and then I'd say the second component is obviously the, um, uh, the, the money in politics. And listen, I think people in our form of government have the right uh, to come to Washington and have their interests represented and do the things that they do, which many of you do. I think that's totally fine and fair game, and that's the way our country's been great. The problem is there aren't enough people coming to Washington representing more moderate, constructive views. In other words, People come to Washington generally are either focused on a narrow particular interest or they're focused on an ideological bent. There aren't many kind of, if you walk up and down K Street, you don't see many firms that have been organized to advance moderate views. And put differently, if someone goes on the floor of the House of Representatives, and this is kind of similar to kind of what Andy was saying, and gives a speech, and the speech is about how we should never reform entitlements, ever, no matter what happens, uh, and they get off the floor of the house. There'll be people clapping, giving them high fives, uh, offering to support them both financially and structurally. Similarly, if someone goes on the floor of the house and gives a speech about how we should never raise taxes no matter what, never a penny, they'll walk off the floor of the house, they'll have high fives, people will be there to support them. But if you actually go on the floor of the house and say, you know what we need to do, and you do a little of this, a little of that, and a balanced approach, you walk off the floor of the house, you're in an empty room. Um, and that's a big structural problem. And I think, as a practical matter, well, I think what has to happen is Americans have to think about supporting moderate candidates almost as a form of philanthropy. If they actually want to make... <laughs> no, but seriously, people give money to the Kennedy Center and they give money to performing arts, but they don't give money to support good government. And similarly, I've been, uh, and I've had this conversation with some of my colleagues who run big businesses uh, and have you know, Washington groups advancing their interests. And one of them was talking to me the other day about what was going on, and I said, listen, you know, what you have to do is you have to not just advance the two or three very focused issues you care about, but you have to get with your colleagues and try to support constructive, moderate views. In other words, you have to take some of your Washington heft and allocate some of it towards good practical solutions and not just towards this provision of the tax code. And I actually think that is in the self-interest of most large companies. There's a lot of great companies in this room. I think it's actually in your self-interest, not just to advocate for your very specific things you care a lot about, 
which your shareholders uh, deserve you doing that, right? Because that's in your shareholders' best interest and you have to do that. But I also think you should be also putting your shoulder against, hey, we need to be dealing something with the long-term fiscal trajectory of this country. Hey, we need to be working on some of these other issues. And I think we actually have to just get more resources supporting constructive, moderate views because incentives matter in life, as we all know. Charlie Munger, Mr. Buffett's partner, said the longer he lives, the more he realizes he underestimated, underestimated incentives with each passing year. So we have to change the incentive system. Well, I, I think there was great, uh, great thoughtful uh, observations there about the scoring system, the gerrymandering. I come from a district that is uh, uh, one of those purple districts. It was represented by a Republican, Larry Hopkins, in the 80s, uh, who was a fairly moderate Republican, a conservative Democrat, farmer, uh, mayor, Scotty Basler in the 90s, um, then a uh, center-right um, uh, Republican, Ernie Fletcher, in the late 90s. Uh, then my predecessor uh, was a blue dog Democrat, Ben Chandler. 60% um, registered Democrat, but they elected uh, me, a center-right Republican. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, uh, I think that's a good point um, that John makes about um, uh, these kind of uh, districts that are occupied by um, folks who are only worried about a primary if they're, if they're focused on re-election. Um, I would say also, though, that there, there's something at this particular time in history that needs to happen in, in order for our country to kind of um, break the fever and move forward into kind of a regular order. And, and that is this, this issue with our growing national debt. Uh, I think everybody recognizes this is a problem, but I don't think that we're going to be able to get past the, the, the partisan gridlock, the, the dysfunction in Washington until we do something pretty substantial in this area. Uh, and, and substantial, whether that means, um, you know, a Bowles-Simpson type approach, something that's going to put the country uh, on a, 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 a more sound fiscal trajectory. Because once we do that, then I think you're going to see a little bit more uh, capacity in the, on the part of members of Congress to 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 uh, you know work on a on a regular basis in a more uh, constructive way. I think we've got to do that big take that big step first. Um, and my legislative director was making this point to me earlier this morning. You know this is not easy. It's not easy. Um, but we can't get frustrated. We have to we have to try to to reach the the, the grand bargain. We have to try to get there because I think only when we get there do we do we have a real chance of uh, moving beyond the the perceived and real dysfunction and gridlock that we see every few months. Yeah. Thanks, Ralph Hellman. Uh, during the shutdown, um, we saw a couple of members on a bipartisan basis, Dent and. Uh, kind come up with an idea. It's not, I'm not getting into that issue, but it didn't work because I think people on both sides didn't want to buck their leadership and the issue got too big. So the question for this group is, have you looked at two or three issues, much like Andy Barr said, you know, here's his three. Have you looked at a discrete set of issues that your group wants to take on, find solutions and try to fi figure out how to get your 
respective leaderships or committee chairmen or bodies to work together and find a solution. Either you come to them or are you willing at the point if they're never willing to come to an agreement, you're willing to buck your own leadership and, and do something on a bipartisan basis on some key issues that aren't going to get moving? Well, I can tell you um, the bipartisan group that we have. I mean, we actually did have an idea, and John Delaney and I actually went on national TV with it. And we basically said, let's take some of the drivers of, of the debt, which Andy just mentioned, and one of them, let's take a simple one, Social Security. And this was actually John's idea. He came to my office and said, let's, let's tackle a simple one that everybody agrees to. We have to fix Social Security. So, you know, I thought this was great. I mean, I wasn't thinking of that until John came to my office and brought it up. But let's put that in the plan. Let's give everybody some time to do it, but let's also bring tax reform into play, which I think would have been important to, to drive the economy. So I know as a group, we all agree this was a, it was a good start. Um, we started to go to leadership. I attempted a number of times. Really, leadership was in this mix of just trying to get something done with a very ideological group of members that it was, it was very difficult there at the end. So are we going to continue to fight for those things? Absolutely, because I think we all have to bring certainty and predictability to Washington, but we also have to bring it to the business world. We have to make sure the economy understands, uh, you know, that the businesses understand that we do have some, you know, some long-range plan, and I think that has to be the goal. So I think we've done it. Will we be willing to buck leadership? I, I'm not sure that's bucking leadership. I think everybody in leadership agrees. We've got to have Social Security. We've got to have that entitlement reform. So let's take the simple one. Here's what, what always disappointed me, and I'll never forget. Uh, we, we were in our bipartisan meeting, and one of the members said, well, that's too easy. Social Security is too easy. Let's go get one of the big ideas. I'm thinking, if we can't get the easy one, forget the big one. But you see, and, and, and the dent meeting, I was in, I think many of us were in that, those meetings. The other problem there is there were 60 people in the room, Republicans and Democrats, but when you get 60 people in the room, everybody's got a better idea or a different idea, and that's what kind of brought that one to a slow grind. Yeah, I, I would think that, uh, well, Jimmy, on ways and means, if we can't see the advantage of a pro-growth tax reform, then we're really missing the boat. I mean, if we really want the economy to start to rise again, we have to do something that makes sense. Uh, and it's certainly the current code doesn't allow you to do that. In the last couple of months, as we've been trying to figure out, you know, inviting working groups in to sit down and talking with them. As you listen to them, and you, you go to them and you say, listen, tell us the current code, how it's holding you back. Give us some ideas to make it better. What would make it better for you? And in the end, just, you know, any, any questions you have of us, go ahead and ask them. I like the way that uh, the chairman went about that. I thought that was really, uh, gave, gave the private sector a chance to get in and get involved with the formation of this a regulatory reform. I mean, my God, uh, you know where I'm from in Western Pennsylvania. You talk to the coal guys about how they're going to stay open, and the answer is they can't. They can't. And in a country that, in some places, up to 50, maybe 60 percent of electric power is generated through burning coal, to find out that we're not just shutting down coal mines, we're shutting down towns, we're shutting down regions for some, some idea that there's a better way to do it. I'm not saying there's not stuff out there that's going to be better in the future, but when you look at what we have just in our fuels, it's abundant, it's accessible, it's affordable. We have things that nobody else in the world has, and I think the rest of the world looks at us and says, please keep doing what you're doing. You make it really easy for us to beat you in straight out competition. It doesn't make sense. So, you know, the, the tax reform absolutely has to be done. Regulatory reform has to be done. And, and in the end of it, I, you know, I don't know that it's so much bucking leadership. Uh, having run uh, a business where I have 110 people, 115 people, I never thought that I knew all the answers. But I think I knew how to hire the right people that would be able to run their departments. And then the idea for me was to sit down with them. I wanted to find out 
Why my body shop manager thought it was important to buy a piece of equipment or make an investment in something, my answer was always, you know, if it kills more than it eats, I'll buy it. If not, I don't want it. Well, no, I mean, you can't do it. Listen, I've, I've, got, I've got four kids. My wife has come from a family of nine. You've got to put food on the table every night. I don't need anybody else coming in. It's eating for nothing. Uh, so I always thought if you just boil it down to the way we live our lives, and especially the American people, you know, I go back home. You know, they, in, in, in my time, they're talking about the CR. They say, oh, what, what's a CR? I mean, it just didn't make sense to any of them. The debt, the debt they get, because there's not a person, uh, most people that, that I represent, that don't understand about the struggle with watching what you have coming in and watching what you have going on. It's just kitchen table economics, doesn't take a genius. You don't have to go to the school and get a degree in economics to understand that if you spend more than you bring in, and you do it day after day, year after year, and, and, and when I talk to people, I don't talk about 2.6 trillion in revenue and 3.7 in expenditures. I say, hey, it's just a family that brings home about $24,000 to $25,000 a year and spends $37,000 a year. And they all go, you can't do that. I said, we do it. We do it every freaking year. And we just don't even worry about it because you know what? We can, listen, if we can't put it out there, if somebody's gonna borrow that money, I, and I gotta tell you, my background, I was around whenever prime rate was 21.5%, 22%. Now people tell me, you ought to be crazy, it never got that high. I said, let me tell you something, when your flat floor plan is 1% over prime, you sure as hell don't forget those times. So you want to see this thing skyrocket. You want to do something. You get to the point where you no longer are a good investment. You watch those interest rates rise, and then you start to tell me about how you're going to tackle that. So if we don't have a debt reduction program, something that makes sense, that allows us to pay down that debt, we'll never dig our way out of this. So I, I think Arthur thinks of tax reform, absolutely, regulation reform, absolutely, and some type of a debt reduction plan that absolutely makes sense. We can't keep doing what we're doing. I mean, if we haven't seen this in everyday life, and every American that owns a home or owns an automobile, in my case, in automobiles, the worst thing I ever did with people is let them finance a car for 72 months. All they ever had at the end of that, in about three years, was time to trade their car. They had negative equity. And when you start adding the negative equity to the difference between the new car and the car that they're trading, they'll look and say, well, this isn't what we agreed upon. I said, well, no, this is the money difference, but we're refinancing your debt from the first car. And they go, oh. But I thought when you took that on trade, you took the debt. I said, no, all we do is get you bought. And we put people in a position. Uh, so you gotta be careful when you do some of these things. So it's good on paper, but you can put people in a hole in a hell of a hurry and then just let them worry about themselves and dig their way out. Usually what happens is they, they end up driving the car to what won't run anymore because they can't get bought anywhere. So, and any of you don't understand, I'm a car guy. I mean, it, it, <laughs> so I, it, it, I mean, that's what we work on is getting people bought, getting them into a situation where they have a car that they can afford. So, but I think that's basically, isn't that what government is? Don't we want a government we can afford? Don't we want a government that has a, is sustainable? I mean, if you can't afford it, don't freaking buy it. And we've done it for years and we keep saying, don't worry about it, kids will pick up the debt. So, uh, three things, repeating myself, this, this debt, the debt reduction package, uh, regulation and, and also uh, the tax reform. But why I had the chance, you know, we talked about our staff. Do you know what these guys went through the last couple of weeks? It is unbelievable what they went through. Not just here in Washington, but back home. So I want to publicly thank the, my guys who are here today, Carly and Timmy. Tommy, thanks so much. Uh, you guys did a, a whale of a job in really trying to calm people down because they were really so upset and didn't know the direction we were going. So I want to publicly thank you. So, um, look, and I thought the efforts of uh, 
Charlie Dent and Ron Kine were incredibly constructive. I was one of the signers on, on their uh, letters. And, uh, but it, you know, in, in, in hindsight, it really never had much traction um, because the leadership, and I don't think it's about bucking leadership or not. I just think the leadership structure that we have now, they're very powerful. And the reason leadership is very powerful is because the country is very divided. And if you think about our government, our government was really designed that when we agree as a country, we can do things very quickly. And when we don't agree as a country, it's really slow. And, and the problem we are, have right now is a country we really don't agree because obviously everything that Mike just said, for example, I and most people agree with. The, but the real issue is we disagree about how to fix the problem. It's not that we don't agree that it's a problem because I've seen a lot of pollings on the fiscal trajectory of the country. And there's overwhelming support for changing the fiscal trajectory of the country. Everyone thinks it's a problem. But then when you actually deconstruct and ask people how they feel about specific fixes, those things all poll very negatively. So you have this kind of casual, I, I hate to say almost undisciplined view of the problem, which is we acknowledge it's a problem, but there's zero conviction on doing the things that have to be done to fix it. And, and that's really the view of most Americans at this point. And that's a big structural problem that we have. And there's going to be some forcing function that's going to have to change that. And I have some theories as to what that forcing function will be, but that's really what the country is unfortunately going to need because we need a big forcing function to change the American people's perspective on these things, because we are, in fact, very divided as a country. And we're very divided as a country, in my opinion, because the things have changed very rapidly in the last 20 or 25 years. Globalization and technology have completely changed the workforce of the United States. And a bunch of people have done really well by those trends. People with really good educations have done great. If you have a great education, it's never been a better 20 years. If, you have, if you're very highly skilled, technical skills mostly, it's never been a better 20 years. If you have access to capital, it's never been a better 20 years. But if you're not one of those three things, it's been a pretty rough 20 years. And you can look at it when you look at the standard of living of the average American, it's gone down while we have pretty significant income inequality growing. And I think we have income inequality in this country, not because people who are doing well did anything wrong. I don't think they did a darn thing wrong. I just think they happen to have the skills uh, that were uh, exactly what you needed to thrive in the, in the world the last 20 or 25 years. And I think it's a big problem because I think if, if you play this out, what happens is this becomes a country of birthright and not opportunity. What always was singular about America, and, and to some extent why most people came to this country, was because birthright didn't matter. In other words, you could be born into a family where your parents didn't go to college like mine or like Jim's and I'm not sure of uh, backgrounds of others, but, and it didn't really matter. But in today's world, I think birthright is actually becoming, unfortunately, much more important because of this growing in income inequality. And what we have to do is figure out how to bend these curves to benefit more Americans. We're not going to be able to do any of those things unless we become fiscally responsible, like Mike said. And we have to tackle those issues. But I think the country is grappling significantly with how to respond to this new world where the variables have all changed. We don't have a common enemy. We have an incredibly quick media cycle. We have this growing income inequality. We have whole industries being disrupted by technology and globalization. And people are searching for answers, which I think also causes a lot of the anger and rhetoric and stuff that we see on both sides of the aisle. 
But I think that this is a, a very, um, uh, and, until the country actually gets more in sync with each other, it's going to be very hard for Congress to really be ahead. Because if you look historically, and I'm not a historian here, but Congress is always kind of the last thing to act. Like the country has to be somewhere and then Congress acts. It's, it's pretty rare that Congress is ahead of the country. Even if you go back to like the Civil Rights Movement, you see where the country was. The country was much further ahead of Congress, right? Congress was, was lagging. And I, I, don't, I, I just think that's the design of the organization. And I think that's one of the issues uh, that we have to deal with. I want to go back to a point that John made in his opening remarks um, when he talked about how he, for example, talked to me about his infrastructure bill, and it's how we communicate with one another, and, and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes a little bit, and looking at, looking at problems from the perspective of the other person. And um, maybe it is a communications issue. I totally agree with John when he says the American people have to be there before Congress acts. That's true. And there is this issue about we know we have to reduce the debt, so we know we have to tackle our debt problems, but we don't really want to deal with uh, the, the methods to, to achieve that objective. Um, but if we talk to one another in terms of the perspective of uh, folks who really uh, are committed to um, important programs like Social Security and Medicare and speak in the right terms, instead of speaking in terms of fiscal responsibility, we need to make sure we live within our means, which I do all the time, by the way, but instead do a better job communicating in terms of, let's make sure the government keeps its promises to you who've earned these through your taxes over the years, earned these benefits. We need to communicate why this is important to people, why, this, why, why fiscal responsibility actually matters. It matters uh, not just so that um, our debt to GDP is uh, properly balanced. It's important because the government has made a promise to people, and then in 15 or you know maybe even less years than that, 100% of all federal revenue will be consumed by Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the interest on the national debt. And we are not going to be able to keep our promises that we've made to people, future generations of Americans, young people, if we don't make important reforms now. So um, uh, yes, the debt is our, is our enemy, time is our enemy as well. And so the sooner we act now, the, more, the better, cap uh, uh, better able our government's going to be in a position to actually keep its promises to people. Um, so that's what I would say. We need to communicate to one another from their perspective, um, uh, both here in Congress, when we're trying to persuade one another, but also we need, as leaders, we need to do a better job communicating to the American people why this growing national debt actually matters to them, how it's going to impact them, in order to get them to that place that John talks about so that Congress can act. Why is a growing national debt a threat to you personally? What is it going to mean for your kids? Um, it's going to mean higher interest rates, it could mean inflation, it could, it could mean that your standard of living is not uh, the same as your parents. And, and, and if we do that, if we do a better job communicating that, maybe we can get the American people to the place where they're willing to make some sacrifices um, now. Can I add one thing to what Andy said? Yes, sir. I, I think it's, it's a really good point. And, and I think, again, in the spirit of bipartisanship, we have to think about ways to communicate some of the things we agree on to our side 
differently. And so I, I agree with everything Andy said, and I've been thinking about ways of communicating, for example, social security reform to my democratic constituents and colleagues, because, and, and it seems like the arguments we've used historically, the structural debt argument hasn't really worked. The generational kind of wealth transfer argument hasn't really worked. But I think about like, for example, what works in a democratic context, and one of the, the, the ways that things are most successful among democratic primary voters is to frame things around equality. That's a way that, that's something that Democrats, for example, respond really strongly to. And I actually think the entitlement reform issue is an equality issue, right? Because at some level we are disadvantaging young Americans if we don't deal with this issue. So I think thinking of ways of communicating how we have to make some of the changes um, differently to our constituents is one of our obligations. And this is where it's important for us to break from the talking points, right? Because the talking points, you know, in, in my party are don't balance the budget on the back of seniors. That's a really unconstructive talking point, right? It doesn't really accomplish anything. Whereas if you say a talking point, which is we need equality among all Americans, and we cannot set people up to have dramatically reduced government services in the future. That's, you know, so, so I, I just wanted to add to it, because I think what Andy's saying is true, but I also think it's a, a incumbent upon us in our parties to think of different ways of communicating these messages, because these messages have been so routinized in a certain mindset that we do have to break a little bit. And it's much easier for to change your own party than to try to change the other party. So there's an obligation on each of us to try to do that. So I didn't mean that. <laughs> I thought I didn't well, I feel like I've just sat through a senior government class or you know a graduate study. This has been great. Unfortunately, we are looking at 9:30, and I want you all to know I have worked with some of the nicest staffers trying to put this whole thing together. All of which, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with these guys. Their staff emulates the way that they deal with one another, they deal with others around town, and we thank you very much. So on behalf of the Ripon Society and the Franklin Center, we'd like to present you with the newest book out, Tip and the, and the Gipper, How, uh, How Politics Once Worked, and hope that you guys will come back next year, and I'd love to work with, with all of you, and see where we are, because we have some huge items coming in, the budget, the debt ceiling, et cetera, and to get you back, uh, maybe June, and say, where are we now? You know, four months out from the election. So please uh, thank all of them with me. For a great